0: The New York Times reviewed Minneapolis author Jessica Nordell's book, The End of Bias, A Beginning. They wrote, if anything, the end of bias argues for a more profound sense of responsibility. Nordell describes bias as a kind of theft, one that deprives individuals and undermines entire societies. Jessica Nordell's writing has appeared in many places, New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and more, She's got a BA in physics from Harvard, MFA in poetry from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Jessica Nordell joins us now. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You have a really interesting background. I think people always think that you're either a science person or you're an artsy person and that those things don't cross. And it seems to me your book shows how those things can cross and how this kind of study is so much more understandable when written in more of a poetic style, if that makes sense. Tell us a little bit yeah. about this background. It's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I hope that's
1: the case. And I really hope that both of those parts of my background kind of inform the, the writing and just the, the sensibility. I mean, I was always very interested in understanding how the world works, and that influenced my decision to study physics in college, but I also was very connected to language and the rhythms of, of language and sound, and kind of like the the beauty of the written word and, and and loved poetry. And so, you know, I'm I'm a science writer now, but I really tried to bring my poetry back background into the writing because I think that it, it's important to understand the nuts and bolts of the science, but it's also really important for it to to touch the heart and for the ideas to really touch people on, on a really personal human level. And so I try to bring both of those parts of my background together when, I, when I'm writing about any kind of scientific topic.
0: Was it hard to get into science writing, get published because you were female? It was definitely hard to um, break into journalism for national magazines
1: and newspapers, and in fact, that was one of the reasons that I got really interested in the, t- the topic of bias. I was, I myself had experiences of sending out queries and pitches to editors at national newspapers and not hearing anything back. And then I had this very surprising and kind of alarming experience, which I talk about in the book of sending out the same query but using a gender neutral name i used the jb instead of jessica nordell and the piece was accepted right away and that sent me down a road of really trying to understand how bias works because i don't think the editor who responded was necessarily out to suppress women writers or anything Mm -hmm. like that i think that but there are these really subtle kind of quick automatic assumptions that we can all make about one another, especially if it's a stranger. Yeah, that can be really detrimental. So that, that made me really start to look at bias on a deeper level and start writing about it and ultimately work on looking for solutions. Like how do we actually address this problem, which is, which is where I landed with this book.
0: You know, here, here we are. We're both in the state of Minnesota. Um, There is this idea of a Minnesota nice. There's a lot of great intentions in this state. And yet, you know, we are the state that has seen bias on such a high level play out on the national scene, let alone right on the streets of Minneapolis and in the streets of Grand Rapids where I live. Can you talk a little bit about this? We can walk through this world thinking we have great intentions, that I have no bias and that I am trying to be good in the world. But I also grew up in the world with all these things here that have informed mm-hmm. who I am right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of the crux of, of the idea of unconscious or unintentional bias. I, I kind of think of it as unexamined bias because, yeah, exactly as you say, you know, we, we grow up in the world. We learn categories of people. We learn stereotypes and associations connecting to those categories. And then, you know, those stereotypes and associations start to influence the way that we react to people and it can happen really quickly. It can happen really automatically and, and without us necessarily being aware that it's happening and it can really conflict with our, our, our values and our, our belief about ourselves. Like as exactly, as you said, you know, we can believe that we're, you know, we're good people. We really want to be good people. I think most people do really want to do the right thing. and Try to you know be behave in the world and interact with people in a way that's positive, and we can still be susceptible to these reactions that aren't that way because of the culture that we grow up in. I mean, the the good news is that we can overcome it if we start to develop habits of noticing and develop a little bit more awareness and consciousness about those reactions.
0: So it's the, you said habits of noticing and, and trying to overcome this, that sounds very different than the, you know, mandatory diversity training I take every year from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It sounds like these, you know, while diversity training is not wrong by any means, there's something more individual and specific that you seem to be talking about.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think there's a combination of things that all have to happen at the same time. It's interesting you mentioned mandatory diversity training because one of the things that I looked at in the book was really what approaches actually change people's behavior and which approaches don't change people's behavior. And one of the interesting findings was that mandatory trainings ha- can actually have an have a, the opposite effect. There was one study that looked at the rates of women and people of color in management positions after mandatory trainings and found that they either stayed the same or went down and the, the hypothesis was that when people are forced to go to a training sometimes it can create backlash or people can kind of resist being told what to do or it can have it can have these like unintended consequences so for that reason I I think voluntary training can be possibly better, um, a better option. But yeah, I think that, you know, I think there's sort of an interplay between individual change and more structural change. Like, you know, over the last year and a half, we've talked a lot about structural and systemic solutions to things like racism and sexism. And there's been a little bit of a, I think, move away from talking about individuals as drivers of change. But I actually really believe that the two are closely connected. And so, you know, if, if we change individually, if we start to notice our own responses and our own habits and start to question them individually, that actually affects things like the laws and policies that we support and the, the policies that we uphold and, and likewise, when when structures change, that can start to influence people's individual experience too. So I think they're actually, I think they're, they're it's all important. It all, it yeah. all sort of needs to be there at the same time. But I, I don't think you can, you can overstate how important it is to do the individual work as well.
0: That's Jessica Nordell. Her book is called The End of Bias: A Beginning you layer into this, the studies and the science of this, you layer people's stories as well, which I really appreciated an example so that we can understand it. Can we take like the medical field as a example right now? Kind of tell us how that system is set up, how you've seen discrimination or bias, and then maybe some good things you're seeing in changes in those institutions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The medical field is one where there. are is a lot of evidence that there is bias, mostly unconscious bias. I mean, I think uh, most healthcare workers do not go into the healthcare field intending to provide worse treatment to some groups than others. But we see evidence of different treatment for women, for Black and Latino patients, We see it for patients who are heavier weight, heavier body weight. I'll give you just a couple of examples. In the case of Black patients, there are groups of studies that have found that when patients have vascular disease, and there are a couple of different ways of treating it, either amputation of a leg or treatment that spares the limb, Studies have found that black patients are more likely to experience an amputation as compared to a limb-saving surgery, a limb-saving treatment when you compare them to white patients. And that's even when you control for things like the severity of the disease and the insurance status and um, the quality of the hospital. There are really alarming disparities and differences that we see among different groups. We see women's symptoms being taken less seriously. I mean, one of the that I tell in the book is of a friend of mine um, here in Minneapolis, actually, who whose symptoms were not taken seriously by her doctor. Um, and she ended up being having stage four um, colorectal cancer. And so, so what do we do about this? This is a really good question. I mean, one of the stories that I tell in the book that's promising is that of a group of trauma surgeons who were looking at blood clot prevention, and they found that there were not adequate rates of blood clot prevention being handled in Johns Hopkins Hospital, which was the the hospital where they worked at. And so what they did was they developed a, basically, it it sounds really simple, it's a checklist approach. So they had, rather than have doctors doing intakes, just sort of deciding, you, you know, using their kind of holistic judgment to decide whether a patient should receive a particular kind of blood clot prevention, this intervention actually had doctors go through a step-by-step computerized checklist process to make sure that there weren't any steps being overlooked in coming to this decision. And then the computerized checklist spit out a recommendation based on the answers to a whole bunch of questions. And then the doctor could decide whether or not to take that recommendation, but it at least steps them through a consistent, set of criteria to make the decisions and they found that this actually eliminated the disparities between men and women's treatment for blood clot prevention so i think that something like that using systematic decision making as a support for doctors decision making can be one way to get around some of these problems
0: I wonder if we can move into, before we go, the uh, a workplace setting. You know, you are citing lots of studies that have happened, but you also created this fictional company to study, because, you know, how men and women, how people of different races, how how they can be promoted or what kind of opportunities all of us have there. Can you kind of explain what led you to doing this and what you found out?
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, when I was reading tons and tons of research about bias. What I found was that all of the studies are really, uh, they look at one instance of bias at a moment in time. So there will be a study that looks at, that, that you know, gives two different groups of people uh, a resume and one group gets a, uh, a woman's name at the top of the resume and one group gets the man's name and then they, they compare how people respond to the resume. And there are a lot of studies like this that kind of capture people's response, whether it's biased or not, at like one moment in time. And what I was interested in was, well, how do these add up over time? Because when you're in the workplace, like, you know, I am a woman and have had a lot of workplace experiences where there are small things that happen over and over. It it doesn't just happen once, you know, bias is experienced many times over a day, a week, uh, you know, a career, an entire career. So I had this question, which is, well, what's the cumulative impact of these experiences? And so I teamed up with uh, a computer scientist and we developed a, a computer simulation of a workplace that in which we introduced a handful of the really common kinds of biases that women experience in the workplace. Things like having their work valued slightly less, getting less credit, for work that they do, being penalized for being seen as self-promoting or kind of um, advocating for for themselves. So we built all of these biases into the simulation. And what we found was that even if the the amount of difference between men and women's evaluations was pretty small, like 3%, we ended up with a workplace where the very top level was 87% men. So we were we we found that these small biases really accumulated and created major disparities over time. Well the the good news is that there are ways to combat this, thank goodness. Some of the effective ways are actually in a similar to the medical field um, example, using really standardized decision making. So when someone is being interviewed or when a when a group of candidates are being interviewed, making sure that you have the same kinds of questions that you're asking everybody, or when you're evaluating someone for a promotion, making sure that there are objective criteria that they're being evaluated against and making sure that those criteria are transparently available so that everybody knows what they are. Those can be some helpful ways to get around some of these biases, but there there are many different ways. Those are just a few.
0: That's Jessica Nordell. Her book is called The End of Bias, A Beginning, The Science and Practice of Overcoming Unconscious Bias. You can find more information at jessicanordell.com. Thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much
0: for having me. It was
1: really a pleasure.